0: The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket presales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country. As we donate ten percent of our profits to the Woodson Center, thank you.
1: Hi, this is Glenn Lowry. You've tuned in to the Glenn Show. Uh, I'm with John McWhorter every other week, and this week with John McWhorter and joined by Vincent Lloyd. Let me introduce John, who is uh, in need of no introduction. He's a professor at Columbia University and writes for the New York Times. Uh, I teach at Brown University. The Glenn Show is sponsored by the Manhattan Institute. I'm obliged to say that. I don't mind saying it. And we're with Vincent Lloyd, who's professor of theology and religious studies at Villanova, directs the Black Studies program there, and uh, is the author of many books. Most recently, uh, Black Dignity, The Struggle Against Domination, published by Yale University Press. Vincent has published many books uh, by Stanford University Press and Columbia University Press and Oxford University Press, and he's a prolific writer and uh, thoughtful, uh, philosophically oriented, uh, engaged with uh, the uh, existential problems that are uh, generated by the fact of Black domination, if I may say so. That's a surmise that I take from looking over your your stuff. Anyway, you're also most recently author of a piece that was published in Compact uh, magazine, uh, Black Professor Trapped in Anti-Racist Hell, which has engendered a lot of discussion. And we thought we might uh, take that up with you here, if you don't mind. John, you got anything
0: to add to that? Add? Um... No, I've got, I've got some, some questions. Um, I think from my little corner, what I've of course heard a lot about is the passage in Vincent's piece where he says that he had encountered my claim that hyper-wokeness is a religion and thought it was ridiculous, which yeah, many people have, but then instead, you know, he found that it was a cult. And Vincent, interestingly, I don't know whether you're agreeing with You're not, because I imagine you might be saying it's not a religion. Instead, it's something else. It's a cult. And I don't know whether that means worse or the same thing, but I always hear about that passage. I find that less interesting than what Vincent went through, because frankly, I've, no offense, but I've always known it was a religion or a cult or whatever, and it was that bad. What happened to you, frankly, doesn't surprise me at all, but it's invaluable for someone as smart and insightful and on the side that you're on to explain it in such exquisite detail including giving a name to that person to call her Keisha is dead right especially because that's the kind of name <laughs> she would have it's just it's Keisha will now live forever and we all needed to hear about Keisha and um yeah so that's that's what my impression was it was it, it was eloquent testimony from the front lines of something which these days has become utterly ordinary and there is a stream of thought that says that claiming that there's a problem with this sort of thing is exaggerating about a few anecdotes a few classrooms mostly in some private schools in New England and around New York City that's that's not true but you know how do you prove it twitter's not the whole world and even you know even with this one i've heard people saying that um the plural of um anecdote is not data but Honestly, I think Glenn, you know, Vincent, I don't, I genuinely don't know if you know, but Glenn, you and I know just from our inboxes since about, you know, March of 2020, this is endemic. This is a new reality. People need to write books and articles about it. So that's what my initial impression was.
1: It's the new reality is the witch hunt that's being perpetrated by the religious zealots. Is that what you're referring to, John? And hijacking higher education all the time, everywhere. So Vincent, I want you to know that uh, John has been using the religion metaphor as a characterization of the uh, ex- excesses of the woke for a long time. And I've said it's an insult to religion that he should uh, so characterize it. And I, I wonder how you, as a professor of theology and religious studies, would react to that.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I, I think we do, we do have to appreciate uh, the desire to make the world better, to, to find justice that uh, is I think uh in many of our hearts and uh, is animating the good intentions of of many folks who end up advocating practices that are not necessarily advancing that 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 cause right that to uh, uh, make the world uh have less anti black racism uh introducing more diversity bureaucrats may may not be the may not be the best solution it may be you know, redoubling our efforts to Make our university curriculum uh, rigorous and deep. uh, You know, uh, uh, fix the gaps that that happen in the history and culture that we study uh, in those curriculum. It seems like redoubling those those efforts may be a a more effective tool for advancing black justice, which I think uh, many of us are are on the side of.
1: But on the question of the religious metaphor uh, of the uh, cult and all of that.
2: Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I am a, uh, in a religious studies uh, and theology world. Uh, people have all sorts of debates about what a religion is, what a religion isn't. Uh, and uh, uh, I think that the language uh, sometimes is helpful rhetorically to to make us notice features of a ph- phenomenon that we would have otherwise overlooked. I don't think there's a sort of hard line between re- this and that, being a religion or not being a religion or culture or not a cult. But I, mean, I, I use the language of this piece to help us notice features of what was happening in the story I told. Uh, that we might not have uh, otherwise noticed had that cult frame not been, uh, not been with us. I see. Uh, I'm
1: looking here at a um, uh, uh, part of your piece in compact. I wonder if you'd allow me to quote from it for just a minute. This is specifically on the dogma. You say, but the Telluride workshops were, and you will have an opportunity if you'd like to say a lot more about the workshop itself. But I just want to put this on the table being organized by two Cal students filled with the spirit of the times from what I glean, they involved crudely conveying certain dogmatic assertions. We're now talking about what the catechism of, quote, the religion is, uh, no matter what the topic. Um, experiencing hardship conveys authority. There's no hierarchy of oppression except for anti-Black oppression, which is in a class of its own. Trust Black women. Prison is never the answer. Black people need black spaces. Allyship is usually performative. All non-black people and many black people are guilty of anti-blackness. There's no way out of anti-blackness. So that that's the that's the uh, catechism. Uh why isn't that quasi religious? I mean it does it sounds like completely out of touch with reality to me if I say so if I may say so. I mean it, it I don't know why anyone should endorse that uh, agenda i I, i'm baiting you i know i'm baiting
0: you but it's exactly those sorts of commandments or tenets that make me compare this to a religious kind of thought yeah
2: yeah so i think this is probably a point where we disagree you know I, i think the idea behind each of those dogmas uh is a good one it just gets articulated in an unhelpful way and conveyed in a way that's dogmatic, right? I I think these are points that, you know, we need to reach over time, over wrestling with our own experiences, wrestling with each other, uh, wrestling across lines of difference, wrestling with facts of the world, history, and and, uh, big ideas and philosophy and theory. Uh, You know, we we should be trusting Black women. We we should be thinking about alternatives to prisons. We should be thinking about the, uh, you know, unique, uh, wrongs that marginalized Black folks, uh, you know, are are able to identify. But we can't just um regurgitate that phrase over and over again. We have to, uh, you know, uh, uh re- especially for sixteen or seventeen, uh, as the students are we're talking about it in this case. Uh, we have to f- develop into those those sorts of conclusions.
1: Okay. Well then. Let me ask you: How is it that experience conveys of hardship conveys authority? What, what's what's the authority to compel me to uh, think or do a particular thing in virtue of the fact that a person has experienced
2: hardship? How does that follow? Yeah, so I think we have to think in complex ways about authority. We, uh, if there is an authority, we don't always defer to that authority. Sometimes we uh, listen to that authority and then we disagree, or then we come up with our our own ideas, use it as a conversation starter rather than a conversation stopper. And in this case, I think if one has experienced domination in one's life, one does acquire some expertise in how domination works, right? When you're face-to-face with the forces of domination, you you get pretty intent on figuring out what's going on. And I do think there are things that that we ought to be learning from those uh, who who come face-to-face with domination, whether it's in experiences of poverty or uh, experiences of racism or sexism or uh you know other forms of domination
0: you know something Vincent uh, I wanted to ask you something glenn actually no no <laughs> we've been in this this ensemble for so long that i know your your rhythm you've got no, no yeah you've got more no i would be interrupting keep going <laughs> well Okay,
1: John. Thank you. Thanks for the deference. I appreciate. It. I was going to go back to the list. I mean, you're right. We don't agree, uh, and and I think that uh, the move that's made by the victim of of a hardship to uh, command in you know I, I, I'm very uncomfortable with it. I think that can that can lead to excess. But I don't want to belabor the point. I I, I hear you on the idea that experience might. Open things people up to something from a particular angle of vision that's worth taking into account. Uh, all non-black people are guilty of anti-blackness.
2: Really? Right. So again, I, I think when we abstract these from uh, from their uh, a sort of dialectical process, where they're um, part of uh, you know their insights gained from experience, they, they can sound quite. Um, you know, uh, um, hollow or as if, if as if they're uh, obviously wrong. But uh, uh, if we think about, you know, uh, what was necessary for slavery to be even plausible in the U.S., right? that took all not just laws, but it took habits, it it took uh, cultures, it took all sorts of things that didn't go away uh, when slavery ended, when the laws making slavery possible ended. Right, all of those anti-black. Habits and feelings and forms of reasoning and forms of seeing the world persisted uh, and you know they infect everyone they infect black folks they infect, uh, in, uh, infect the white folks uh, you know it's part of part of our culture it 's not straightforward it's not uh, you know we needed to uh, get rid of all this stuff because it 's infected by anti blackness no you know we live in a fallen world right? it 's a, a tragic place right there are all forms of domination that circulate all over, and we need to be really careful about how we clarify what we can respond to, but we also need to appreciate, you know, we are getting things wrong all the time. There are histories that have shaped us that, you know, we're, we're not even aware of ourselves as yet. And, you know, we, we need to have the humility to uh, learn from, from others uh, who have, you know, experienced uh, sexism and racism uh, and other forms of oppression, where, where we should attune uh, ourselves to find those forms of uh, oppression and domination.
1: You know, I I read Orlando Patterson's Slavery and Social Death a long time ago, uh, shortly after it was published. And, uh, you know, slavery is the permanent violent domination of natally alienated and generally dishonored persons. And I always thought about that, which is consistent with what you've just said, that there's limits to the law. So if slavery is not just a legal property claim where, you know, you go into court and you say, I own this person's labor. If slavery is something more of a symbolic domination, permanent domination, violent domination, generally dishonored, then you can have emancipation, which is a legal regime change, and not have really made a dent in the symbolic structures of of domination and dishonor that we're uh, attended to the appropriation of the labor. So I see that. But we're in the year 2023. So, uh, so much has happened in the interim. The idea I take a country like ours with 330 million people with all of its diversity and that I would try to make the political discourse about the unique uh claims to uh domination of uh of uh of black people and then that I would cloak that in the realm of theological righteousness and justice when it sounds like a self-serving and very s- sectarian kind of kind of move i mean don't we in the 21st century want to think about the uh, sort of uh uh significance of all of our people on it with a with a different lens? Are we really a hierarchy of oppression? I, I know I'm not being completely coherent, no. but we don't have time for me to develop a full rebuttal. You yeah. see the spirit of what I'm trying to Certainly,
2: say. Certainly, yeah. And I, I think one of the the great insights of Black justice movements over the last decade has been that you know things actually have not been getting that much better over the last half century right if we look at uh, economic inequality if we look at wealth inequality income inequality if we look at job opportunities if we look at environmental racism right there are all sorts of domains of american life where there is it does seem like there there's something about uh blackness right as opposed to uh just uh, as opposed to class as opposed to other sort of cultural difference there it seems like there's something about blackness that is distinctive, that is qualitatively different from other sorts of uh, forms of marginalization. And the story about uh, the afterlives of slavery right, that uh, uh, persisted uh, even when the laws enabling slavery ended, Right, that seems like a pretty, at least to me, like a pretty plausible explanation for that, that distinctiveness uh, of uh, anti-Black racism that, that we see uh, today, that Black justice movements have put on the, put on the table today. I mean, I would also add you know there there's a long tradition in the in European political thought of thinking about domination as uh, at its root about master and slave, one who can arbitrarily assert his will over another, and what better example of a master slave dynamic right, does one have than the middle passage right that's uh, the the enslaved totally stripped of uh, you know, culture and family and uh, and language uh, and so on. And, uh, you know, a, a master with almost total authority, right? Um, so if we want to learn about domination, the central problem in European political thought and in, in uh, figuring out what justice means, then there's no better place than Black experience to turn. But Vincent, what
0: does that do for Walter Jenkins, the Black middle manager in Cleveland with two kids and a wife he goes to church he's fine i mean if we're going to do pop culture stanley on the sitcom the office i'm thinking of that kind of person so the middle passage yeah the horror of domination i always imagine you know being in in prison unjustly or you know something like that like you you can't control it yeah that's true and black people have suffered from that to a massive degree but why do we want to talk about the Middle Passage and the nature of brutal domination when we're talking about what's going on with Black people today? And, and Memphis is not the answer. That's something that happens to very, very few people comparatively. We're talking about the whole Black experience. This is a genuine question. What, mm-hmm. what is the goal of looking at it with the airplane that high up in the sky? It's something I've never quite understood.
2: Right, so you know, I, I think the um, I agree that uh, the the story uh, about uh, anti blackness rooted in in slavery doesn't speak to all black uh, black folks. Right, there are uh, uh, we have to think about class, we have to think about gender, we have to think about immigration. Right, there are all sorts of other factors that, that we have to think about as well. But there is a particular power to that story, and uh, you know, I, I think the. Uh, when, when we're sort of looking at these issues uh, at a distance from a relatively uh, comfortable position, looking out on the nation and saying, well, you know, why can't people get along? Uh, people look so different. Black folks look like they have all these sorts of different experiences. You know, th- that's one perspective. If one is looking from the perspective of you know, uh, poor black folks whose uh, lives uh, are under threat every day, whether it's from environmental racism or police or, or other Actors, right it seems like there's an urgency right an urgency that, uh, to to find stories that will uh transform uh the nation right well that, that will uh keep poor black folks poor black women safe uh from uh the the harms that that they really do face on a daily basis
0: what is a world without domination
2: yeah that's a, a great question and and you know i i uh think that's something that we look to literature to find, we look to music to find, we look to poetry to find. I I don't think that's something that we can uh, describe in prose or in a system. It's something that that we have to imagine together and, you know, we have to be engaged with those who are in struggles against domination. Again, I think there's some expertise that comes about in that struggle uh, and that expertise can help fuel visions for what that world without domination looks like. But it seems, now maybe it's just because I'm coming from a theology, religion perspective, but believing in a a world where uh, sin is no longer a problem seems like a pretty important
0: thing. So you want to deconstruct (laughs) structures of domination. You want to dismantle, to use the word people often use, dismantle these structures of domination. I'm sure that there's a part of you that is interested in sketching not in a musical way, not, not in an artistic way and not in a spiritual way, but a concrete way, what we should be seeking, and maybe not for Walter Jenkins, the middle manager, but for the guy who's in the project somewhere and isn't quite sure what he's going to do and is being tempted by gangs. Is, is he not to be dominated? What, what kind of society should we be trying to build to help him in the here and now? So I, I think that's a, a great question, but it's also
2: not a question for um, uh, intellectuals, right? I think there are folks who are experiencing all sorts of harms in their lives and who are doing a great job you know, uh, for finding their neighbors, finding others who are, who are experiencing those forms of harm, those forms of domination, and naming concrete, specific uh, demands for, for transformation, whether they're about prisons or about the conditions of, of housing projects or about you know, uh, environmental, uh, environmental issues, pollution and locations of chemical waste plants and all of this sort of stuff. Uh, you know, I, I think rather than uh, me, you know, in my relatively comfortable position at Villanova University, sort of naming, these are the, the priorities. I, I want to be, you know, pointing to th- those movements on the ground that are, are, are uh, closest to the problem. And so, you know, ought, ought to uh, be the, the site of the uh, sort of imagining new worlds and, and prioritizing forms of domination to push against.
1: I want to get to uh, Telluride. And, uh... Black professor trapped, but I have to I have to put this on the table. So a world with fewer prisons or no prisons would be a better world, maybe. And we need to rethink how it is that the anti-black domination that you were talking about in general is playing itself out specifically through criminal justice policing and in- imprisonment. I'm going to talk about crime. And I hope I won't be dismissed in talking about crime as somebody who's tried to, you know, blur the, you know, the clarity of the domination, sh- whatever. Because I want to talk about victims and I want to talk about violence, or anti black violence perpetrated by black people. Uh, and I hope we're not going to deprive them of their agency and of the dignity of their uh, humanity by ascribing their behavior to some general unnamed forces that are. You know, lurking everywhere of anti-blackness. I hope that we're going to get granular and and dealing with what it is that I'm talking about. So I could cite statistics, but I don't think I need to. I w- could you respond to that,
2: Benson? Sure. No, I think we should get uh, we should get granular, right? The, those who are causing harm very often have been harmed themselves, right? This is a tragic world. This is a fallen world. There there are deep problems of violence in our American society. Uh, And they're not uh, straightforward, sort of discrete problems. One person causing this act to another person. It's one person who has had a series of harms caused to them, who's now causing harm to another, right? That that doesn't justify, you know, the, the one act by the one person but it means that we have a big complicated problem that we have to address and we have to address it in lots of different ways and lots of different um, strategies. Uh, and we can't just fixate on one act or name a problem like black on black violence uh, as um, you know, sort of the end of the conversation.
1: I didn't want it to be the end. I wanted it to be the beginning of the conversation. And I wanted to say, while those forces that you allude to certainly exist, what is the world that we invite if, if we don't, extend the, uh, the as I say, dignity to the person of holding them responsible for their actions. I mean, that's not the only thing we're going to do. That, that's not the end of the conversation. But I take a pistol, I fire it out the window of my car and the bullet goes through the head of some uh, six-year-old sitting on their grandmother's lap. I mean, what, what exactly was the response supposed to be? That starts happening at a scale that the quality of life in the community is genuinely diminished, is it really politically unacceptable to, uh, to talk about, uh, to talk about that in a world without prisons? Help me understand that. I'm, I'm sorry. Forgive my naive.
2: No, and I, I think here we, we probably have some similar instincts, right? That, uh, you know, those. Uh, you know, uh, if we're going to hold someone responsible, it shouldn't be. You know, it should be those around them who are who are best suited to hold them responsible. The state, you know, at a, at a distance, at a level of abstraction, is probably not the best entity to hold uh, responsible. You know, uh, th- those who have been harmed and are harming others, right? To uh, uh, to work in that really complex, uh, messy space, right? That space of the fallen world of the, this tragic world that we inhabit, right? We we need to to uh, empower. This really micro level communities and neighborhoods to uh, hold each other accountable, to have the resources to hold each other uh, uh, accountable. But that, that's not the job of, uh, you know, uh, this abstract state uh, set of sentencing guidelines or you know, a police force where the, you know, the folks are coming in from the, the police are coming in from the suburbs and you know, think that they know what's going on with one person uh, doing one thing to another when they don't realize the complexity of that, that family, that community, that neighborhood.
0: So, Vincent, do you do you mean that if there's a carjacking, a um, bunch of you know black teens, often it's girls these days, there's a carjacking and they grab somebody out of their car, the person resists and they stab him and the person might die. And that's not just an anecdote. That's ordinary in some places. In some cities, for some reason, that kind of becomes a copycat thing. Are you saying that the solution to that is not incarceration and all of that and the cops coming in and, you know, possibly, you know, overdoing it, doing something wrong. The solution is that that their mamas and their grandmothers are going to tell them what for and bring them around because they're part of the community. I genuinely have often thought that's what people thought, like the community resources and then maybe sister, whatever, this sort of matriarchal figure that a lot of inner city neighborhoods have who sort of takes care of everybody and has a certain wisdom you know in her early 60s so those girls are going to go sit at her feet and therefore they most likely won't carjack again and that'll set them on the straight and narrow and that would be better than the criminal justice system is that is that the sort of thing that you mean you know, we've
2: had half a century of getting used to the criminal justice system as uh, the best solution to these sorts of problems. And you know, it's a really elaborate system and uh, it has a kind of naturalness to it. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, what you're describing, uh, John, uh, seems unnatural. It's not what we're used to and it isn't well developed. I agree, right? There are a lot of uh, uh, um, experiments that need to happen in order to get those sorts of local neighborhood-based family, community-based systems to work well, right? We need to encourage those sorts of experiments Uh, but if the the choice is put someone in a cage, uh, right away from their family, away from those who love them, right. Away from those who could transform their soul. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, the choices between keeping them in a cage far away or, you know, uh, reintegrating them into their community with the help of family and neighbors, you know, I'm going to choose the, choose the latter.
1: Yeah. The word utopian is on the tip of my tongue. Uh, i don't know how we get there from here, and i'm not sure we should try to get there, but i haven't thought it completely through um we're we're not a village society or you know in and where the thickness of communal ties can be sufficient to actually carry out the the administrative task i mean crime solving for example, how do you solve crimes you 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 have to investigate them you need an administrative structure to do that. Uh, you know what? What? What are courts? I mean, courts are nothing but of a, a venue within which a deliberation, which then has the force of in the law and of the police that enforce what happens in the court to actually impose whatever their rulings are. The courts are embedded within a larger kind of hierarchy of of uh, of relationships and 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 power dynamics. So to opt out of all of that. John will be back. I don't know what's going on, but we're not going to worry about it. Um, so I I I don't know how you how you get there from here. Uh, plus, here we are, a political community where we're the United States of America we we, we have to deal with, uh, you know, uh, uh, the 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 diversity and the complexity of our society. Um, so. I, I I don't want to change the subject until John comes back. Did you want to you want to say anything about no, that? No, experience? I just
2: uh, and I agree. It's a big it's a big problem. It's a big task, right? But keeping more than two million folks in cages right now, you know, is um, a moral abomination, right? To keep humans in okay. cages, uh, you know away from their loved ones, uh, is uh, something that, that you know we need to say no to right away. And you know, even if we don't know exactly what the solution is going to look like right now, if we are confronted with a moral abomination right now. Uh, you know, we need to forcefully say no and, you know, encourage experimentation for living uh, together otherwise.
0: It sounds like you're referring to, and for technical reasons, I missed about the past minute, but it sounds like you mean something like August Wilson's Pittsburgh, like a a (laughs) tight-knit Black community where everybody can kind of take care of their own. It reminds me of um, Maya Angelou during the O.J. Simpson disaster saying let the black community take care of him and i remember thinking so she means we're supposed to smack him on the back of the hand and you know there's supposed to be some mother wit there's a model what what you're referring to is a is a is a is a a trope i mean it's something that people say and something that people think about i can't say i've ever thought it quite worked for for modernity you know so for example if you read about a housing project in the early 60s The alarm is that people are taking out knives. That was bad enough. But when you're dealing with the guns, when when you're dealing with the sorts of things that have become a norm now because the Overton window has shifted, I wonder what grandma or sister Watkins can do. I take your point in the old days, but I have a hard time extending it to to now. I see what you mean, but I'm not sure you can put the toothpaste back in the tube. I don't know how you could go back to the world of fences. But I I want to ask you a question.
1: I, I want to ask you a question, John. Do you agree that two million people in cages is a, a moral abom-
0: abomination? Keeping too many people in cages for too long is a two moral million, abomination. Two million people. Oh, you? Oh, you said two million. No, well, I'm
1: repeating what Vincent said. He made a he made a very oh. clear declaration about a moral principle. He says the alternative to what he proposes is to hold people in cages, and we are doing that. And there are two million plus number is less than it used to be. It's been trending down, not up, but it's still a lot of people.
0: And I'm it's, asking you whether or not you
1: agree that that's a moral
0: abomination. Um, I'm not sure where to place the numbers, but to the extent that there are too many people, such as Glenn, I've learned from you over the years, the number is too large, but I think that a very significant number of people do need to be in cages. There are people who are are... Unappeasably violent, and the reason might be something their father did to them. But here in the present, that person should be kept off the street, out of the classrooms, out of relationships, not make any more kids. Some of those people do need to be in cages, and it's not just five or six. However, that too many people have been made to go to prison for too long, people who did something wrong at 20 and they're still in there when they're 58? No. There are changes that need to be made, but I would not, and I don't mean to caricature, but I would not say that no one should be put in a cage except an absolute psychopath i think that their cages their cages for a reason a modernity creates okay. monsters so let me ask I'm you not, a question not a Vincent, racialized, I, yeah
1: understood uh so what they taught in criminology class uh when i was a kid was uh you you incarcerate in order to uh uh deter so you're punishing in order to keep other people from committing crimes in order to incapacitate so you're taking a person who could be harmful to others and you're placing them in a situation where they can't do that harm. And as retribution. So you're, in a sense, affirming some kind of value or norm uh, or uh, whatever uh, that you That's consider to meester, be virtuous right. by punishing the yes. person who's, who's contravened that norm. So. No,
0: it's not. Forget what I just said. Go ahead, Glenn.
1: I'm I'm sorry I just I really I'm I'm asking really there's no incapacitation argument there's no deterrence argument uh and I guess retribution would be the one that you'd be least uh, sympathetic to uh, um, uh uh to support the idea of incarceration.
2: Right so I I think uh we <laughs> I need to see whether the system we have right now which is extremely expensive we're spending tens of thousands of dollars per person for whatever circa 2 million people uh incarcerated you know, is that system working? Right? Are, are folks coming out of that system and, you know, uh, not harming others? Right? And are they participating in their communities? Are they you know, leading thriving lives that, that enrich the, the lives of those around them and their neighborhoods? And you know, the system we have is broken. Right? We can, uh, uh, even regardless of what we think about principles in the abstract, right? we we have a particular system right now in the U.S. with two million around two million people incarcerated. A system that's not working, right? We need to be thinking imaginatively about other other sorts of systems.
1: Okay. We should. Let's do.
3: I'm starting out the new year just like I concluded it, with one great night's sleep after another, thanks to my cozy earth bedding. It's no wonder over 5,000 customers have left five-star reviews on their website cozy earth was founded to transform lives by offering the softest most luxurious and responsibly sourced bedding in the world cozy earth bedding is made using only the finest premium discs from highly sustainable bamboo no wonder top designers choose cozy earth their bedding is naturally temperature regulating so you'll sleep comfy all year round i sure do cozy earth is also the brand that made oprah's favorite things five years in a row now that speaks volumes whether it's their luxury sheets loungewear pajamas or new bath collection you'll love shopping at cozy earth and now you can order their bedding in six wonderful colors plus cozy earth bedding comes in a beautiful reusable canvas bag Save 35% now on Cozy Earth. Hurry. This New Year's offer ends soon. Go to cozyearth.com/glenn. And be sure to enter Glenn, GLENN at checkout to save 35%. That's cozyearth.com/glenn.
1: Let's talk about Telluride Association uh, Summer School.
0: Uh, you have that piece. I'm sorry, John, go ahead. I just want to ask one thing. Vincent, about 13, 14 years ago, I wrote a piece or two about Black Studies departments, where I said that Black Studies in itself would be a fantastic subject, but that I worried that in most departments. And I couldn't be dogmatic because I didn't know, but I worried that, you know, intelligent guess, that in most departments, black studies is shorthand for studying racism instead. And I said that that was too narrow a topic. I took a lot of heat for that. You know, There were people who wrote things in magazines and stuff with You know, black studies professors saying we know who McWhorter is and what he stands for. You know, there are people very mad at me for not wanting to debate on the radio about it. They wanted to beat me up because I was mischaracterizing what I was drawing from the syllabi of a couple of black studies departments. I was I was interested in seeing in your interview with Connor at The Atlantic that you openly say that Black Studies is supposed to be about domination. I kind of wish I had had you to refer to 13 years ago. You say that that's what it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be learning about the history of Ghana. It's not supposed to be learning about the black exploitation movies. It's not supposed to be about Blackness. It's supposed to be about us being dominated. Is that what you think of Black Studies as... As existing for the reason of, and to be honest, from what I know of the history of the departments, that is, that was the purpose. It wasn't about Blackness. Blackness is nice. It's not that it's not studied, but the main meal is supposed to be racism. It's history. It's present, and what we can and cannot do about it, and mostly cannot. And it seems to me that you are saying exactly what I was saying back then. And I'm not saying that you read it, but I I knew I was right back then. And here you are saying it. Do you agree? The the mission of a of a good black <laughs> studies department is to study domination, which is one subset of blackness, but nevertheless perhaps to you the most urgent.
2: Yeah, so the the history of Ghana is about domination, right? The black the, the exploitation films are about domination. I, I think there are all sorts of cultural and historical artifacts which you know, clue us into the dynamics of domination at work, and it's not just about race, right? It's about race and gender and uh, economy and other factors that are interconnecting. Uh, and that's why black studies departments have a, a particular um, you know, importance to the intellectual mission of the university. Part of the human condition that we investigate at a university is, uh, you know, a central part of the human condition is domination is justice is, you know, uh, pushing against domination in order to move toward justice. Uh, and if black studies centers that, right? Uh, Which is a political project, right? Black studies emerged out of student protests. Uh, It emerged out of the uh, protests against the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement that were then channeled into naming what was missing from university curricula, naming what was missing from student life at universities, namely many Black uh, students and and faculty and, you know, topics, uh, but uh, aimed at maintaining a, a space at universities that would be you know, uh, deepening a university's mission, right? A uh, humanistic mission, because universities were missing a part of the human condition. That is the examination of uh, domination, uh, a central part of the human condition.
0: And I believe you say in the same interview that you think that, that domination should be at the center of the academic endeavor in general, that that's what the purpose of being an academic or an intellectual is. Uh, you
2: know, uh, no, I, I teach at, at an Augustinian you know. Catholic oh. university. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I teach at an Augustinian Catholic university, and one of the great insights of St. Augustine is that he's always grappling with the way in which he has a will to dominate and a will toward uh, justice or a will toward God, and he has to think within himself about which of these wills uh, is uh, he allowing to um, uh, guide his behavior. He thinks the same thing is happening in the Roman Empire, right? Is it the will to dominate that is guiding the Roman Empire, or is it uh, you know, a, a, a more humanistic justice, justice, uh, loving will, uh, and uh, you know, I, I think that that is one of the things that we do at a university. Right, is to provide tools for asking exactly that kind of question to interrogate ourselves, interrogate the world, interrogate our political institutions to see, you know, w- w- which which w- of those two wills—the will to dominate, right—or the will toward justice—is is, is
0: um, animating them. Vincent, I must say that um. I've never heard anybody express that, and you're localizing it to the mission of your particular university, but I think many people would consider it a more general statement, and you might be one of them. I've never heard that said more explicitly, and I think this identifies a major sticking point between someone of your 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 positions and someone of different ones because, you know, looking at the bookshelf behind you, and I'm looking at the bookshelf behind Glenn. I'm just thinking about how many books there are, how many things there are to study. And I must say, and I have to put this carefully because I've got, you know, this, this, this hanging disdain in the way I talk, which is almost never intended. But you, Vincent, don't you find that a little narrow? And, you know, I'm going to put it a different way because what I'm really thinking is it wasn't that. That wasn't the right way to put it. Isn't that as the dominant motivation of the life of the mind, doesn't that get a little boring? Isn't there a whole lot more? Yeah, so I I've got to ask you that.
2: No, thank you. Thank you for that question. And, I, I, you know, I think if we if we look at actual uh, on the ground movements for justice, there are places of joy, there are places of song, there are places of celebration, there are places of ritual, there are places of prayer. Right? Uh, and there are places of wonder. Right, figuring out how can how can mm. we live together in new ways. Right? we have been uh, dominated by you know, this boss, this corporation, this uh, institution, and you know now we want to uh, work together to imagine differently. Now we want to work together to uh, 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 overturn you know the the, 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 the this uh, force that was keeping us down, and uh, you know uh, uh, have the joy of a new beginning. And, I, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I don't find that boring at all. I find that life-giving.
1: Well, I must tell you, uh, as a man of a certain age with adult children, contemplating launching my youngster, black youngster, on the life of the mind by grounding it in a cognizance of and a reflection about their domination, Terrifies me. I, I I would think that that's exactly what I would would not want to happen. Uh, I would want them to see beyond the fact of their inherited status as a descendant of slaves and uh, break free. But, uh, so I I mean I you know could go on for a long time about this and I won't. I, I, I very much share John's sentiment that there's something reduction, reductive and kind of narrowing about defining, uh, oneself in that way. Uh, you know, I, I want to, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've thought about this, Vincent. I'm sure this is the kind of thing that you, you, you spend a lot of time thinking about. I mean, I, I want to break free from it, and you- comp- you're probably going to tell me that that very desire to escape it is one of the symptoms or the consequences of the fact of domination which has reduced me to this thing, and i'm de- living in denial of something i mean you know not to put words in your mouth but uh anyway, we can't go on here forever, and I do want to hear about the professor trapped in the world of uh anti racism so uh uh wh- the article has got to a lot of play. I've had a couple of friends send me, uh, you know, reprints saying uh, I was in the Telluride Association program when I was a kid. It's a great thing. And uh, this is uh, disturbing and whatnot. So tell us about, yeah, you know, of your, your experience.
2: Thanks, Jan. I, I know we just have a, a couple of minutes left here, but uh, I was teaching in this program for uh, elite high school students, uh, students with extraordinary abilities from all over the U.S. and beyond. Uh, the program had post-2020 uh, reconfigured so that the, the focus was no longer on a sort of a great books type curriculum, but uh, on uh, anti-oppressive studies uh, and critical black studies. Those were the two tracks that, that now exist in the Kelly Ride summer uh, program. Uh, it uh, struck me as a great opportunity uh, to think through, you know, what are the ideas animating black justice struggles? How... What are the experiments happening about you know, imagining new worlds and so on? But uh, as part of this this program, you know, I witnessed the sort of growing toxicity on on the left. Uh, it seemed as if you know the the program was uh, taking the uh, spirit and vibrancy of justice movements and reducing it, flattening it into. Uh, statements that the students were just supposed to repeat, and we couldn't have that kind of deep searching discussion uh that could allow students to to make up their own mind and to deepen their their commitment uh to uh intellectual life and to and to pursuing justice
1: so it was a pedagogical dis- dispute at the end of the day that that you uh, ran aground of that is you, you wanted to have pe- as kids come to conclusions which with which you're uh, antagonists might have agreed, but you wanted them to reach them through a process of deliberation, and they wanted it to be dictated, as it were, to be as pay- nailed to the wall, and people would then know what to think.
2: Yes, yeah, and I mean, I think everyone in the situation was in an awkward position, right? The uh, the uh, various figures I, I describe in the article were also themselves victims, right? We were uh, given a task; uh, they were given a task to communicate this anti-racist uh, curriculum uh, and uh, implemented it in a way that, you know, I, I wasn't happy with. And I thought uh, shut down seminar discussion, but, you know, it, it was ultimately the, the sort of broader, broader forces in the nation. And then specifically in the Telluride association that that resulted in you know, something that was actually not a seminar happening. Right. And I think we can all appreciate the the richness of what a seminar can be, where we all come in with different assumptions. All of those assumptions are challenged over time. No one ends where they started, and we see that there's an unfolding of you know our own understanding of self and world that, that, that happens in the, in the seminar.
0: Vincent, this is what everybody wants to know, and I think I would not be responsible if I didn't ask, and it's very simple. If I had been teaching that seminar, or any seminar, but no, no, that seminar, and Keisha had demanded that certain changes be made, My answer would have been, Keisha, I know where you're coming from, but I'm running this class. It's going to go the way I want to run it, and I'm not going to accede to your demands, and I'm very sorry about how this is coming off, but if it doesn't work that way for you, you're going to have to go work with someone else, and I have spoken. What everybody wants to know is why you bent at all. Why did you feel that Keisha needed to be adjusted to in that way?
2: One of the exciting things about the Telluride philosophy, you know, which was not not necessarily my philosophy or the the, the students, but the the organization's philosophy, is is that uh, students should be empowered uh, to uh, with this sort of radical democratic authority to design things themselves. Uh, and if the majority of students want something, that's then that's what they get. You know, I, again, I'm I'm staying neutral on whether that's a good or bad thing, but or whether it, it could be good if it had more constraints or more of a framework. But you know, this is what the organizational philosophy was. and, and... So It's part of a tradition. Hey, certain... so,
1: so what happened, Vincent? The, the, the seminar blew up somehow, uh, and uh, you ended up getting uh, canceled or something. I mean, what
2: happened? and so the, the students uh demanded the students had a list of grievances uh claiming that i was perpetuating anti-black racism uh they had learned about these sort of abstract principles of anti-black racism uh they didn't have any uh, any substantial racism around them to uh to apply those principles to and so i was the only sort of uh or the the instructors of the seminar were the only sort of outsiders uh to to which those principles could be uh, applied um uh, you know, it seemed like when, when that kind of claim is made, you know, uh, you are perpetuating anti-black racism. It's uh, expecting an apology or some sort of course correction. Uh, one of the demands was that we switch from seminar-style instruction to lecture, uh, which seems very ironic in various ways as well. Uh, I, I reached out to the the Telluride Association leadership and said, "Now, as an organization, you need to step in and say." No, this class is supposed to be a college level seminar. This is what a college level seminar looks like. Uh, that's why you're here. That's the purpose of your summer experience. The Telluride Association was was not willing to do that, and so the, the seminar ended prematurely.
1: Well, it is student governed, right?
2: Yes, and the the alumni board is all young alumni. They're usually in their twenties or so. So there are all sorts of uh, there's a lot of susceptibility to the the currents of the time uh, for for good and for ill.
1: Well, you talk about irony. I mean, having heard you for the first half hour or so of our conversation, I find it exquisitely ironic that you would be accused of anti-Black racism.
2: <laughs> it does seem like, a, a you know, a, one of the things that uh, the left has to work on, right? That we, we need to be building allies and, you know, reaching out to, to folks who might have underdeveloped or, or not just just not thought so much about political views and Uh, you know, cultivating the the virtues and sensibilities that can help us work together in in a struggle for justice rather than suspecting each other or personalizing uh,
0: disputes. That whole episode, to me, it's it's so sadly ordinary, right down to the fact that the Telluride powers that be wouldn't do anything about it because it involved Black people. It's just, it's so craven and it's so unreflective And it's so condescending to, in a way, all three of us and all black people to suspend judgment that way just because it's about racism and because they're afraid that an apparently rather intimidating person. I'm beginning to picture what Keisha must, um, how Keisha must present. They're afraid of her. They're afraid of getting yelled at by her and they're afraid of what she's going to put on Twitter. That is but not. But Vincent, way- Vincent wants
1: us to bear in mind that Keisha is a part is caught up in the same uh, problematic that uh, everybody else is, and that's we should, one way of putting it. Should, but whatever, uh, she's that's what he's said.
2: Up in, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I think uh, Keisha is a victim here as well, uh, and you know, it's a product of the you know the dynamics of the time, the larger cultural dynamics of the time. You know, I, I really enjoyed talking. I have to I have to run. Uh, sorry. Thank you so yeah. much, uh, and uh, look forward to being in touch.
1: I know you have to run. He's got another event, everybody, so he's not being rude. Take care, Vincent. Thank you so much. Okay, so, John, what do you think overall about uh,
0: the uh, Vincent Lloyd story? Well, you know, um, seems like a great person, seems like a very smart person. But honestly, I, I would have to say that in terms of a defense of that domination focused way of doing academic inquiry and the the tenets of the new way of looking at social justice. I I can't say that I was moved to feel much differently than I I do now. And in a way I I found him useful for presenting what the other side is because he wasn't doing it out of anger. He wasn't trying to beat anybody over the head. And you could see that he is bright. He's nice. He's well-meaning. He is not a naive person at all. There's no demonizing people like that. But he is definitely, he is, and I am I would say this in front of him, he is a, a beautiful instantiation of a frame of mind, which in a different spirited person can be used quite abusively. Um, but I, I do not saddle him with that description.
1: Well, I, I will admit to having been impressed by him, even though we disagreed about a lot of stuff. Uh, I did uh, do a little research on his background and, um he's an accomplished uh, scholar he's he's a serious uh thoughtful person um i i thought he he's an academic uh one of the things i read about him he's quoted he's being interviewed he says uh that uh black black studies as an intellectual enterprise within the humanities in today's university is like french theory was back in the in the eighties you know Uh, Derrida and Foucault and and, you know those people Uh, because it's a fertile fertile ground for and then I read on a little bit more and I I realized this is a world that will make sense to somebody in an English department or something in a university but it won't
0: make much sense to anybody else (laughs) it's a a localized world yeah definitely wow I really though it's it's this academia that I got myself into, sometimes I wonder whether I would do it again if I knew what was coming. Because, you know, linguistics ha- has in some of its sub-departments, which are increasingly influential, that that framework of person. And I just, that's not why I'm interested in things. It's not that I don't understand social justice, but the idea that you apply those hardest firing brain cells to that one particular concern, to me, it's just, it would be like talking about nothing but taxes all day. It's just, there's so much more. And I guess that makes me either a dilettante or a baby or not significantly concerned with social justice. But that idea that academic thought is being a warrior for battling domination, just that. It just, for me, it's always just, and what else really is that all? And I'm very open to the idea that I'm just missing something that I ne- I never got over being five years old or something. But whenever I run up against that, I just, I'm so, so disappointed. I don't know.
1: So I met, I think you might be interested in this because you just had a column about the Afro-American studies, African-American studies, AP course controversy. You yeah, know, I, I definitely want to, to hear that. about that. You say Ron DeSantis might be right about something. He may be wrong about everything else, but he might be right about this. And I just met him. I didn't meet him personally, but I was just in the same room with him uh, because there was a a gathering of uh, Global Liberty Institute. So that's a new initiative that these guys at Stanford, uh, Scott Atlas, uh, the public health guy, and uh, Josh Rao, who's an economist who teaches in the business school, they're Hoover Institution affiliates, and that's how it is that I came to know them and came to be invited to do my little dog and pony show thing at their at their thing in Palm Beach. And Palm Beach is pretty nice this time of year. <laughs> um, but uh, they invited DeSantis to, to close out. And so influential, and uh, the heavy hitters that they run with are so heavy hitters that uh, he showed up. Yeah. Uh, and I got to hear him do his spiel. And I have to tell you that uh, he presented very well. Really, he's very telegenic. He's very intelligent. He he, he had There's command of a whole lot of different issues. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. he has he he's, he he's
0: not chopped liver. If he ends up being the nominee, you know, and if he ends up being president, at least he has a has a brain. I mean, I I can go with you on that. At least he's an adult, definitely. But on this black studies thing, I don't. Yeah, I doubt if he is reflecting about the issue he's got this broad brush notion that he's using because he's part of a certain base but if that broad brush means that you don't have an ap curriculum based on a fundamental notion that bell hooks is the center of intelligent black endeavor then as far as i'm concerned okay the broad brush happened to do the right thing this time, And of course, I'm ha- I have a lot of people who are saying that I shouldn't say this because it gives support to DeSantis and encourages people from the hard right to, you know, have their say. And that's that grand old argument. Don't say what you believe and know to be right, because you don't want people who are going to agree with you for the wrong reasons to further their own influence. I don't go for that. It's funny. People on the left never think that way when they express their views. Hard left. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but it needed to be written and it needed to be written by somebody black. And um, I'm glad, I'm glad I wrote it. Yeah. Okay. I got to tell you this anecdote. So to get to Palm
1: uh, Palm Beach, I had to go through Charlotte, North Carolina in the airport, minding my own business. I'm uh, walking down the corridor and uh, you know how the restaurants are seated right in the core, in the airport uh, corridor so that. A chair might be right near the walkway and somebody can be having their lunch oh, yeah. and you walk right oh, yeah. past and You can almost touch him. So this black guy calls out and he says, hey, you're Glenn Lowry. I say, yeah, I'm Glenn Lowry. He says, yeah, I, I follow your thing. And uh, he, then he said, oh, that McWhorter, he says, uh, you guys are OK, but you need to come a little bit to the left, he says. Mm-hmm. Okay. So <laughs> I say, well, <laughs> hold your breath on that, bro. <laughs> McWhorter's already too far to yeah, the right. left. <laughs> so we shared a laugh. We shared a laugh. And then he said, uh, it's serious. It's serious. They got a guy, the Ku Klux Klansman in Florida is getting ready to try to be president of the United States. And uh, McWhorter is back in his play.
0: What's amazing is that somebody had a conversation about that, and I wasn't even there. But yeah, that's that's what a lot of people— Think I wasn't backing him. You know the the import of this though is you know after about ten minutes passes is less whether or not I'm giving support to DeSantis. But what posterity needs to know is, folks, what happened to Glenn? Where a black person comes up at the airport and gives you a kind of support. Both of us have that happening all the time, and this is very important. I'm not saying this to say, aha. We're so well known. Isn't that great? I am not that kind of person. It's that I think a lot of people think in relation to this DeSantis thing, a lot of people think that our fans are only the sort of people who like Ron DeSantis. That is not true. And again, I'm not bragging, but, but two days ago when I was out and about in New York city, I was stopped literally by three black men throughout the course of the day who either see this or know me from something else. Now, it's not bragging. That is just the fabric of my life. But it's to show that we are not only appealing to white Republicans. There are plenty of black people of all walks who think like us. And very rarely does a black person who stops me or writes me say that they're conservative. So what Glenn and I are saying is normal things. It's just that these normal things have often been underrepresented in the mainstream media and in academia. Just wanted to get that in, Glenn. You, you don't sure. think it's unusual that a black man recognized you at a restaurant. It happens all the time.
1: Yeah, although I don't want to misstate this gentleman whose name I never got uh, positioned because I, I don't think he basically endorses what we're saying. I, I think he, he simply... It, yeah. Well, he, th- he, he respects us. I think he thinks we're serious yeah. people.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But... I t- I detect a connection between your uh, position on the AP uh, African American Studies course, which is that if it's really going to be indoctrination about victim studies, then maybe and U.S. is racist and bad, then maybe it's good that Desantis is pushing back. I detect a connection between that and the first part of our conversation. We were talking about Vincent Lloyd talking with Vincent Lloyd, and you had confronted him over this thing about, well, then basically, right, Black Studies is about, in your view, it's about racism. And you want it to be more than that. You think that's boring. You think that's that's
0: uh, narrow. Uh, am I reading and, you? And misrepresented. Yeah, a whole lot more has gone on than those things. Yeah, all of that looked like something written by somebody who runs a Black Studies department. And it's not that those things aren't respectable in themselves, but it's just such a biased coverage. I'm going to do another column where I write about what are the sorts of things that you would want to discuss in addition to those things? Because I think I'm responsible for you know, making it clear what a representative Black history of the past 50 or 60 years would be. Because I think a lot of people cannot imagine that it would be anything that isn't reflected by Malcolm X on the T-shirt with his fist up in the air and that slightly feral look on his face. That is not the whole of our experience. I would venture to call it half. I'm not going to go below half, but there's more. And I just find myself thinking, I have never read a Jewish history. I have never seen a history of Irishness. I have never seen a history of ness, or perhaps more to the point Koreanness that is so obsessed with who hurt us, who tried to hurt us and what we did about it and whether or not we triumphed as if that's all there is. There's no more articulate testimony to what slavery did to us and then Jim Crow in a way than that ambivalence about saying, here's just us, not us who triumphed over what Whitey did to us, but just us. Here's what's good about us, here are great things that we did. And there's an idea that you're not supposed to do that too much because you don't want to detract from people being aware of the racism. That's not the history of a people. I mean, of course, with black America, there's going to be a whole lot of that, especially earlier on. But for that to be all you have to say about what's happened since 1966. No, it makes us look like such hollow people, or so weak we can never quite do it. It's like Sisyphus. There's been more. I don't like it. I really don't like it. And I'm responsible for working up a piece where I show what I would do, upon which I'll be told I'm not a historian. But you know, you can't win.
1: Oh, you're going to follow up another piece where you're going to have a positive agenda. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm going. I'm going to confess my skepticism about the whole enterprise. I don't know if there should even be black studies. Uh-huh. I, I don't know if there should be Black History. I don't know if Black History Month should exist. And I know I'm gonna, I know I'm gonna take flack. Here's what I see. I'll be, I'll be brief. I see identity politics. So my blackness becomes the main thing about my political uh, life. Becoming identity pedagogy. I mean, Vincent said this. He said it begins in struggle. It begins with student protests becoming identity pedagogy. So now we have to teach in virtue of the identity of the person to whom we're teaching. We have to take their lived experience uh, on board. It structures the way in which they encounter the uh, intellectual enterprise. And then the identity pedagogy somehow trans um, um, being transmuted into identity epistemology. Now, now, now there's going to be a way of knowing that is determined and embedded in the historical uh, experience of domination a way of knowing a truth uh and uh I, I i it's not just narrow it is narrow but it's not just narrow it's it's wrong headed it it's it's uh small minded it's it's uh it's a power move and it's ironic because the whole thing is supposed to be about power, race, power, and privilege, race, power, and privilege. It's a, it's a weapon of the weak. It's a, it's a kind of a power move. And uh, what it does to those who are on the butt end of it, the white men, presumptively anti-black racist. Uh, So I, I, I mean,
0: I'll stop. Well, no, I I don't want to admit that I question whether there should be a black studies department. It's it would be very hard for me to say that, based on what many people would be surprised my background is in terms of you know who my mother was, the teacher of social work, you know, anti racist crusader, although you didn't put it that way then. And um even a sense of group loyalty and also a fact that I find blackness writ large, very interesting. I think there could be a black studies department that did a whole lot of interesting stuff where there were exactly one and a half people whose main focus was racism. And then there'd be eight other people who did other things. But the thing is, in our world, the departments could never be that way. Black History Month, I have argued more than once in the media, is obsolete. I get why it was important at a time and Black History Week before that. But I think the idea that there's a month set aside, it doesn't hurt anything. But we study black history in a, in the United States now all year. The job is done. I don't think we can honestly say that the history of black people is marginalized. And I have said and you know gotten really dumped on in the past. And you know, isn't it time to let this go? Why do we have to have February be set it's aside? It's kitsch. It's kind of kitsch. And it's become a marketing scheme.
1: Where mm-hmm. uh, every retailer feels like they have to put a sign in the window saying it's Black History Month. We pay tribute to Black people. We pay tribute to Black film. We pay tribute to, you know, uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, people do it all year. I, I guess, I guess it's okay. I mean, I, you know, it's not, it's not. I, a I'm not going to fall on my sword about it, but it, it just right. rubs mm-hmm. me the wrong way. There's a,
0: you feel a little bit, you end up feeling catered to rather than genuinely honored partly because it's not as if in july nobody's thinking about black history especially since now juneteenth has you know been established in such a more resonant way than it used to be in the summer there's all of that in october are we really not thinking much about the history of black people when it penetrates the media contrary to what some people say it penetrates school curricula even ones that southerners have problems with black history is no longer marginal it's not 1972 where you have these flashcards of black heroes and that's a rare and radical move. Progress happens. And I'm not sure that black history month makes the kind of sense that it may have 40 years ago, but we're not supposed to say so. And so yeah, I wouldn't die on my sword of it. either. Yeah, I, I'm I, not I, writing about I, it now. I don't feel like pushing the point, but no, it's, I think some things you have to allow that time has passed.
1: Okay. Uh, we are going to conclude. Okay. This was a good one,
0: I think. Yeah, um, I thought
1: so too. We, we're management. going to do another conversation, but it won't be for two weeks, and we need to do the Q and A uh, before the end of the month. So I'll be back to you to schedule that. We will do it. Thanks, John. Talk to you right. next time. You soon.